All right, we'll turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. This psalm is a celebration of God's law. And the psalmist gives many different reasons why he delights in God's law. It's his guide. It gives him hope. It provides a standard of justice. It shows him the best way to live. And we come this morning to the final verses of this psalm. So we'll be in verses 169 to 176. And we'll see this morning what each of these verses has to tell us about God's law. Some of these we'll cover fairly quickly. They repeat some themes we've already seen. And since we're covering eight verses this morning, we want to kind of keep things moving a little bit as well. But a few of them we are going to take a little more time with. And then, once again, like we have throughout the series, for the second half of the message, we're going to zoom out to see the bigger picture of God's law in Scripture. And what that means is we're going to see a principle about God's law, one that we've already seen before, but we're going to repeat it again today. And we're going to look at another case law from the Old Testament and ask the question of what this has to do with us today. What is its continuing relevance for us? Well, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise. Teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Well, let's begin with verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. The psalmist here says, let my cry come before you. But how can a sinful person come into God's presence? How can a sinful person come before God to bring him a request? And the simple answer to that is through Jesus. That's the only way. If you go all the way back in scripture to the Garden of Eden, you have man walking with God in fellowship with him. And then sin enters the picture and what happens? There's separation. Man has to leave the garden. He has to leave God's presence. And that separation continues throughout the story of Scripture. It's pictured for us, for example, in the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is built in the Old Testament and you have the Holy of Holies at the very center of the tabernacle and that's where God's presence symbolically rests and no one may go in there except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement as he brings the proper blood sacrifice. But when we arrive in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the one who opens the way for us to have access to God. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. Just listen as I read. I'm going to read verses 19 to 23 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, 
and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let my cry come before you, the psalmist says. How can that happen? Ultimately, that only happens through Jesus. And then he says, give me understanding according to your word. Isn't that interesting that that's what he asks God for? Give me understanding. We learn to understand life, our difficulties, our afflictions, the, the problems that we face, as well as the good things of life. We learn to understand all of that according to God's word. And so the psalmist cries to the Lord for understanding. When things happen that we don't understand, where should we turn to find understanding? You're not going to find it in the world. The world does not have the answers to give you. The psalmist knew God's word provides truth. The next verse, verse 170, says, Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Well, we just saw in the last verse how this can happen, that your plea can come before God. It's Jesus who opens the way. So Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And he says, Deliver me according to your word. God delivers his people according to his promises. Deliverance is one of the things that God has promised to his people. And so the psalmist says, deliver me according to your word. As you've said, as you've promised. God promises to hear his people's cries. And he delivers on schedule. Not our schedule, but his schedule. Not the way that we want to be delivered, but the way that he in his wisdom knows is best. And so he keeps his promises in the best way possible. Not the way that we would necessarily want. Not the way that we think he should, but God delivers according to his word in just the best way. And it doesn't matter how desperate or difficult the situation is. You think of the story of Jonah. Jonah, in that first chapter of the book, has been running away from God. He gets thrown overboard you know, so that the storm stops and he gets swallowed by the fish. Chapter 2 begins this way. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. doesn't matter how desperate or difficult the situation is. God hears the cries of his people, and he delivers in his way, in his timing, according to his word. Verse 171 then says, My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let's start with the back half of that verse. God teaches us his statutes. We need to be taught. We don't just naturally understand these things. Why? Because they're spiritual things. Paul says, as he writes to the church in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't understand things that are spiritually discerned. We are finite. We're limited. God is infinite. He's beyond us. We need God to teach us. And it's the Holy Spirit's role to do that. So if I were to go back a couple of verses in what Paul says there in that chapter in 1 Corinthians. He says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand 
the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. He teaches us. We call that the doctrine of illumination, like shedding light on something. That's the Holy Spirit's work to give us understanding of Scripture. We've been working on the house that we bought, and um, on the addition end of it, which is where we've been working, we don't have electricity yet, so we have you know, extension cords running from the other end of the house and work lights set up. And when we've been working there late at night and it's time to leave, you turn off that light and all of a sudden it's very dark. And so, especially when there's four or five of us out there trying to find our way through, you know, and there's piles of construction stuff and we're bumping into each other and all that. As soon as somebody finally turns on a phone light or a flashlight or something, now we can see. You can see where the obstacles are. You can see where the path is. That's what the psalmist has told us about God's law. It gives us the path. It shows us where the obstacles are. And it's God who teaches us how to understand it. The Holy Spirit illuminates, sheds light on it for us so that we can see the path and we can see the obstacles and we know how to go. That doesn't mean, though, that it doesn't take work. Right? As we've gone through all these different Old Testament laws, there are laws that we come across that we don't just naturally understand. It may not be obvious at first why God prohibited the Israelites from wearing clothing that was made from mixed materials. But with some work and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can understand these things. Maybe you've had the experience at some point where a, a passage of scripture that you're studying, you've studied it before, but this time you see something. Or you understand something that you didn't see or understand before. That can be the illumination of the Holy Spirit helping you, teaching you. And what's the right response for us when God teaches us? What's the first half of the verse? My lips will pour forth praise. Praise God for his goodness in giving us his law and giving us understanding. I want you to listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 2. It'll tell us, why we needed God's help, but it also points out that God was not obligated to give us this help. So we should be praising God for his goodness in helping us because he doesn't have to do it. He's not obligated to. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our predicament. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God is not obligated 
to teach us his word, to give us this truth, to show us his grace, and yet he does. In his great mercy and love and grace, he does. Now, when you receive something that's a gift, what's the proper response? You say thank you. Thanksgiving is the proper response when someone gives you a gift. Well, the next verse in Ephesians 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The psalmist here praises God because God teaches him. And we've seen throughout this psalm, what does that look like in your life? When your life is a life of praising God, it looks like following God's law, obeying him. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. Follow the path of good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. He has given you his grace so that you can walk in that path. That's the right response. It's a response of gratitude, of honoring God for this gift that he wasn't obligated to give, but in his grace and mercy he has given to us. So we praise God for his goodness in giving it to us, but we can also praise God just for the goodness of his law itself. In our lives, the law is good because it reflects God's character. And God is good. Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law, what role does it have in our lives? It shows us our failure, right? Because it shows us our need. There's, here's the standard and we don't meet it. So it shows us our need. It shows us what Christ has done for us. If you think back to the Old Testament, all those ceremonial laws about the tabernacle and the sacrifices, all of that was picturing what Jesus would do to bring us salvation, to bring us redemption. And the law then shows us how to live in a way that pleases God, not to earn his favor, but in response to the grace he's shown us, it shows us how to live. And so we praise God for the goodness of the law in our lives. My lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. Look with me then at verse 172. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. All God's commandments are right. They're perfectly just. We sometimes think that the Old Testament law was somehow deficient. Like it was God's first attempt. And then he fixed it. You know, we don't have to do that anymore. But the law is good. All of God's commandments are right. He hasn't changed his mind about any of them. God values perfect justice, and that is cause for singing, for praise. That's what Psalm 119 is. It's a song of praise about God's commandments. And so we should do likewise, like the psalmist does. That's why we sing Psalm 1 about meditating on God's law. We sing Psalm 2 about how the world's rulers are obligated to keep God's law. We've sung some songs from Psalm 119 we've learned together. That's why we do that, because that's the right response to God's word. Listen to Colossians 3.16, and, and I want you to note the logic of this verse as Paul writes this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, what is the effect when his word dwells in you, when his law dwells in you? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Okay, so I've been taught by God, now I can teach others. 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the right response is praising God with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Gratitude, thankfulness. That's the logic of it. Those are the right responses to God's law. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. Verse 173 then says, let your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts. The psalmist asks God to help him like we've seen in previous verses, but he says here that he has chosen God's precepts. I want you to turn with me to another passage of scripture. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We've turned to this one before, but it's been a little while. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And if you remember, the word Deuteronomy just means the second law or the second giving of the law. So the the book is primarily the law being restated a second time for God's people. And Moses is the one who's, who's doing that. And, you know, Moses is about ready to exit the scene. And so this is what he says to Israel. This is what he says to God's people after he's repeated all of God's law, okay? So Deuteronomy 30, follow along starting in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Now listen, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Moses says, now choose life. What does he mean? He means follow God's word. Obey his laws, his statutes. That is life. Not that it earns you eternal life, but it's the way of life. It's the way to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And our psalmist in Psalm 119 has chosen life. He says, I have chosen your precepts. God says in his word that in salvation, he writes his laws on our hearts. Hebrews 8.10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, back in the Garden of Eden, God's laws were written on Adam and Eve's hearts. But when they sinned, that writing became blurred, smudged, damaged. It's still there, but it's not clear. In salvation, God rewrites the laws on our hearts by giving us the Holy Spirit. And the result is then that the law written on our hearts matches the law written in his word. 
That's the point. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness. Trying to keep the law will never bring you salvation. But when God in his grace and mercy reaches out and saves you, he gives you the Holy Spirit. He rewrites the laws on your heart so that now you can obey God's laws from the heart. Out of gratitude. And that's what the law was always designed to do is to portray God's heart to us. It's his character. And what God wants us to do is to obey it from the heart. We can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. But when God has given you the Holy Spirit, when he has rewritten his law on your heart, then you are enabled because you're the law written on your heart matches the law written in his word. Now you can obey his word from the heart. Verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. The psalmist delights in God's law. You've heard this many times already throughout this psalm, but don't miss the wonder of it. Delighting in law. We think of law, we think, It's a pile of rules that tells me what I can't do. But the psalmist says he delights in God's law because of what God's law is. It reveals God's character to us and it shows us the best way to live. It shows us the way of blessing. And because he delights in God's law, he values God's salvation. The law shows him his need, as we said earlier. Therefore, he sees the gracious nature of salvation that God has given to him. So he says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, your law is my delight. Verse 175, let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. I like this verse because I think this is the psalmist stating what his purpose in life is. It's to glorify God. Let my soul live and praise you. That's what we were created to do. A right understanding of life will help us to see that all of life is to be lived to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever it is that God has called you to do, working in an office, working with your hands, leading as a husband, serving as a wife, as a mother, as a child in obedience to your parents, whatever it is that God has called you to do, it should be done for the glory of God. There is no area of life that is apart from that instruction. Every aspect of your life can be lived to the glory of God. How? God's laws show you how to do that. You want to know how to carry out business and commerce? God's laws will show you the principles that you should be putting in place to do it in a way that glorifies God. You want to know how to nurture and care for your family? God's laws show you how to do it in a way that's according to his design. So the psalmist says, Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. I want to glorify you and your rules will help me to do that. Whatever it is that God calls you to do, his law provides the guidelines for how to do it in a way that brings him glory. And then the final verse, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. At this point in the psalm, 
I don't think we should doubt the psalmist's commitment to God's law. And yet, he says that he wanders. Even those who are committed to God's law still wander. They sin. Even though he loves God's law, the psalmist still at times wanders like a lost sheep. We sing when we sing, come thou fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Did you catch that phrase? Prone to leave the God I love. It's not that you don't love God, but you still wander from him. You're prone to leave him. And the psalmist here says, I do not forget your commandments. I'm committed to your law. And yet he wanders. And we need God to seek us out and bring us back. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes after the lost sheep and brings them in. And the means by which God brings us back can be our conscience, when your conscience pricks you when you have wandered, when you have sinned. It can be the Holy Spirit who convicts you of sin. But God seeks out his servants and brings them back. And the psalmist says, I'm committed to God's law. Notice, he says, I don't forget. In order to not forget something, you have to first know it. I think for a lot of us, that's the step that we're on. We need to know God's law. We need to learn it. And then we need to not forget it. But the contrast here is between getting lost, going astray, and not forgetting. In other words, keeping God's law, not forgetting it, is what keeps you in the pasture, in the flock, where you're supposed to be. God's law is what provides that security, that guideline, that standard for us. Well, the principle that I want us to zoom out and see today is one that we've seen already before. We're repeating it again, and it's this. The case laws illustrate larger principles that have broad application. When we read the Old Testament case laws, they are not something that we just set aside because they're no longer relevant today. They are still valid today if we understand them rightly. The challenge is understanding them rightly. We're going to take a look at one case law to see its continuing relevance for us today. And this one's actually not all that complicated or difficult to understand, but boy, is it one that we have a problem with in our culture today. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. Go ahead and turn there with me. We've seen some of the surrounding verses around this one, but we haven't looked directly at this one yet. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5. This is one that um, not too many years ago, I would not have thought we would have a problem with in our culture, but we do. Not only do we have a problem with people breaking the law, but we have a problem as a culture and even as a church at times in affirming people who break this commandment. So there's something here for us to learn. Here's what it is. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. We have a problem with this in our culture today. It's all over the news all the time. Um, now the translation here, if you happen to have an older translation like the King James or something, it gives you a little broader instruction, which actually better reflects, in this case, what the wording is. But the word garment is really just that which pertains to. So 
a woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man, and vice versa. It can refer to clothing. It can also refer to weapons, tools, utensils, all kinds of things like that, okay? And there is, of course, overlap in these areas, right? Whether we're talking about clothing or tools or what, there's overlap in the realms of men and women and what's appropriate there. But the point is that there are distinctions. And those distinctions should be maintained. The point is not that a man can't ever bake a loaf of bread or that a woman can't use a screwdriver. Okay, that's not the point. The point is also not that women can't wear a pair of jeans. But there are reasons that certain things are associated with male roles and there are other things that are associated with female roles and we need to accept the roles that God has designed for us. Our culture says that it values diversity, but what it really values is sameness. It, it's wanting to level everything out and get rid of all of the distinctions. But God is the one who made the distinctions. And we need to honor those distinctions. So let's talk about it. And I, I am going to zoom in just on the area of clothing to help us understand this. Men and women have different clothing. Clothing communicates. There's male clothing and there's female clothing. And there shouldn't be confusion. Now, like I said, there are areas of overlap, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when there's confusion. One reason that our culture has arrived at the point where we have this cross-dressing and gender confusion that we have today is that we rejected God's design for men and women in all the other areas, like the weapons and the tools and the utensils, right? We've embraced things like sending women into combat and things like that. That's all part of this picture. But clothing should communicate in accord with God's design. 1 Corinthians 11, um, there's a lot in this passage. We're not going to talk about all of it, but Paul talks about head coverings and hair length, among other things. I'm not going to get into the details of those things this morning, but what I do want to point out to you is his reasons why the appearance of men and women should be different. Here's what he says in that chapter. He says, since the man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Different roles, different purposes. All the way back to the created order. This is God's design. And it's interesting that God draws a direct line between how a woman is dressed and what her heart is in relation to God's design for her as a woman. Listen carefully to these verses. This is 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 14. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Notice the connection there between the apparel and the heart. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. He goes on, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
So Paul goes all the way back to the created order and the story of what happens in the garden to help us determine how we should understand gender roles. And he connects clothing with being an expression of what's in the heart. Peter says something similar. This is 1 Peter 3, 3 to 6. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Men and women are different by God's design. Men and women are different physically and emotionally by nature. And so when Peter speaks to husbands, he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. There are differences between men and women, and those differences even instruct us about how we carry out our roles as husbands and wives. God gave different roles to men and women in the garden. We go all the way, all the way back to Genesis 2. Listen to what is said here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, work means to maintain or to farm, to cause it to flourish. And keep means protect or guard. Those same words are used of the role of the priests in the tabernacle. They are to work and keep the tabernacle. So they carry out the functions of the tabernacle and they guard it from anything unholy entering it. But the man here is called to provide and protect. And then a few verses later, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the man's role is given in relation to God and his God-given mission. And the woman's role is given in relation to the man to be a helper to him in that God-given mission. Now listen to how Paul says the same thing in more detail when he writes to Titus. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so there you can see how the instructions that the older women are to give to the younger women are oriented around the husband and the family and the home, different from the way God gives instructions to the men. The roles are different based on the way that God has created us. And God is the designer and his design is good. Everything he does is good. So that includes his design for men and women. Now, our problem is today, we like to define ourselves, right? We, our culture has embraced that idea that nobody can tell me who I am and what I'm supposed to act like or think I am or whatever. 
I get to define that myself. And so if I think I'm a woman today, then that's what I am, and you can't tell me different. Right? That's, the, that's the cultural mindset. But God is the one who defines who we are, and it's his design that determines it. Now, I'm guessing that as I was reading some of those verses, some of you maybe were squirming or uncomfortable with some of the things that they say. Maybe because you don't like it, maybe because you don't accept it, largely because it's countercultural, but maybe it's because you actually really do believe it and you want to embrace it, but it's a very real struggle. It's not easy, right? We have all these forces pushing against us in the opposite direction whether they're the forces inside us, our sin nature that doesn't like to just accept what God has given, and we have the cultural pressures on the outside that are pushing us in other directions too. And so I I don't want to pretend that somehow it's easy to just take on the biblical role that God has given because I think both men and women find the responsibilities and the roles that God has given us to be challenging. We have things in us that just fight against it. But it's crucial that we fully embrace what God says about men and women. Because when even those in the church think that it's okay to redefine what God has said, it's no wonder that the culture has rejected God's design. But it's a sin to rebel against what God has said. What about feelings, though, that don't accord with God's design? What if I desire something different? You know, it's interesting as you think through even just the Ten Commandments. What's the last one? Not to covet. Don't covet things that don't belong to you. Well, the definition of lust is a desire for something that does not properly belong to you, something that's off limits. And so when you have those feelings, when you have those desires for something that's different than what God has given to you, Those desires need to be put to death, not embraced, not flaunted, not celebrated, put to death. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says these things are dishonorable passions. He describes a culture that kind of has this downward spiral of rejecting God's design. And he says this in Romans 1, 26 and 27. God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's a rejection of God's design. God's given us these roles as men and women, as husbands and wives. And the clothing, like we see in our case law from Deuteronomy 22, is just an outward manifestation of what's in the heart. But it signifies the same sin in the heart a rejection of God's design for men and women. Now, that law could not be more contrary to our culture today. But put simply, when we run into a law like this, where we seem to find ourselves at odds with what God's law says, it's not God's laws that need to change. It's our heart. And the Christian community, the church community, should be a place 
where God's design for gender roles is embraced. It's the best way to live because it's God's design. There's a satisfaction and fulfillment that comes from living in accord with God's law. And that makes sense because God has revealed it as the best way to live. This is how humans flourish. Live this way. Choose life. The church should also live this way because it's a witness to the world. There's a beauty and a glory to families and a church community that embraces these roles. I want you to think back. When God gave his law to Israel, listen to what he said about what it would look like for the other nations around them as they looked on and saw Israel living out these laws. This is what it says, Deuteronomy chapter 4. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, this is Moses speaking, that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And the same thing applies in our culture today. Our society is crumbling and the confusion about gender roles is a big part of the picture. But as more and more people find the message of our culture, that way of life, to be empty and harmful, damaging, they'll look for alternatives and the church can be the alternative the only one who has the perfect guidelines, the perfect law of God to live by. And so when we live as God has designed, as a church community, it's a witness to the world. I don't mean that everyone's going to look at it and say, that's what I want, but there will be some. So let's say with the psalmist, give me understanding according to your word. Let's join him in pouring forth praise because God teaches us his statutes. Let's sing of God's word because all his commandments are right. Let's say with the psalmist that we have chosen God's precepts. Let's be able to say from the heart that God's law is our delight. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider what you have said in this psalm, I pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to embrace the truth of what is said there. We recognize that our sin nature causes us to rebel against it and to fight against it. Our culture doesn't help us in this area, but we want to be people who have chosen your precepts, who delight in your law. So we ask you to teach us your statutes. Show us how to live, that we can be honoring and pleasing to you. We recognize that keeping your law is never the way for us to earn salvation. Salvation is a gift that comes to us by your grace as we look to Christ. But keeping your law is the right way to respond to the grace that you've given us. And it's a blessing to us. Help us to believe it 
and to delight in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.